Well, good morning. My name is Jake. I'm part of the team here. It's good to be with you. If I haven't met you, I'd love to meet you following the gathering. There is this story uh, often told of C.S. Lewis at a, a conference of comparative world religions. So C.S. Lewis is this Christian, this author, and the story goes that there was a discussion happening as to what was, if anything, the unique contribution of the Christian faith to the world. And so Lewis was asked, as he walked into this group of scholars on this comparative religious topic, what is Christianity's unique contribution to world religion? And without missing a beat, or so the story goes, right, Lewis replies, oh, that's easy. It's grace. It's grace. And of course, Lewis is right. No other religion puts a thing as strange as grace at the center like Christianity does. See, as one commentator put it in his uh, op-ed piece for the New York Times, grace is not our natural disposition. Instead, he wrote, we are naturally drawn to covenants and karma, to cause and effect, to earning what we receive. In other words, there are many things that come naturally to us, but grace, God's unmerited favor and love, is not one of them. I don't need to convince you of this. I don't need to convince you of this this morning. I was thinking about examples as I was writing. I'm like, how can I illustrate this in our world? And I literally thought of everything. We live in a graceless society, do we not? Cancel culture, is that not what it is called? It's not grace-filled culture. I don't need to convince you of this reality this morning, that grace does not come naturally to us. But it is one thing when grace is missing out there in the world. It is quite another thing when grace is missing in here in the church. When, when our church practices a sort of graceless Christianity. See, if Lewis is right, it's at this moment when that occurs and when we forget about grace that we cease to be unique among the world religions. We cease to be unique amongst the gods. This morning, Paul is going to make an argument in favor of grace. In favor of grace. He'll talk about grace in or the grace that we receive. He'll then show how this grace moves outward. So grace out in the life of him and the other apostles. And then finally, he'll paint for us a picture of what this grace could look like together as a community, as a church. And so grace in, grace out, grace together. If you have your Bible, I'd encourage you, 1 Corinthians 4, we're going to read verses 6 to 7 together. If you don't have a Bible, we have a bunch at the back. Take it, keep it, it's our gift to you. 1 Corinthians 4, verses 6 to 7, we read this. I have applied all these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit, brothers that you may learn by us not to go beyond what is written, that none of you may be puffed up in favor of one against another. Hmm. For who sees anything different in you? What do you have that you did not receive? And if then you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? So once more, Paul is asking the Corinthians to consider his ministry. Consider his and, and Apollos' ministry. And though there are many who would have Paul and Apollos be separate, he mentions them in, together because he wants them to know their oneness together. 
And so he says, look at my ministry. Look at Apollos' ministry. See how we've lived out this cross-shaped ministry. We have not caved, he's saying, to the pressure to add or subtract or twist the message according to worldly sensibilities. And in fact, what's more, their refusal to do so, their insistence in keeping their ministry within the boundaries of Scripture has been for the specific purpose of modeling for these Corinthian leaders what it means to humbly submit to the Word of God. See, for Paul and for Apollos, the essential ingredient in guarding against becoming puffed up against one another has been a regular assessment of their ministry according to two criteria. Two criteria. Ready? Is my teaching in line with God's revelation? And second, is my life in line with God's revelation? See, the word puffed up here, look at that with me. The word puffed up is what we need to hold on to in our series in 1 Corinthians. It's this word that appears seven times in the whole New Testament. And six of those appearances are in 1 Corinthians. It's an important word for this book. And actually appears two more times in our text today itself, in this very section of chapter 4. See, later, Paul will write in verse 18, some are arrogant. That's this word, puffed up. It's the idea of something becoming natural and not spirit-led anymore. Some are natural or arrogant or puffed up, as though I were not coming to you. Again, in verse 19, But I will come to you soon, if the Lord wills, and I will find out not the talk of these arrogant people, these puffed-up people, but their power. And early next year, when we're in 1 Corinthians 5, Paul will say very plainly, And you are arrogant. You're puffed up. You're a proud people. There is a problem of pride in the Corinthian church. I think we can say that pretty safely, Right? There's a problem of pride here. And it's a pride that has led them to move beyond the cross-shaped scriptural vision of Christian leadership. It's a pride that has led them to division, to infighting, to jealousy. And it's a pride that has made them ultimately, this is where Paul's going today, indistinguishable from the rest of proud Corinth. Paul writes, For who sees anything different in you? What a convicting question. For who sees anything different in you? If we could summarize where we've been in 1 Corinthians so far and our takeaway, it could be this. For who sees anything different in you? You're acting like natural people, not spirit people. You're acting like Corinth, not like Christians. For who sees anything different in you? And Paul administers to this question the only medicine that you can give to proud people to cure them. He reminds them this morning of grace. And he asks them this question again. What do you have that you did not receive? And if then you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? Here's what Paul's saying. He's saying all things are yours in Christ. Right? That's what he said so far. All things are yours. Life, death, my ministry, Apollos' ministry, Peter's ministry, it's all yours. It's all to serve you and to build you up in Christ. It's all yours. And which of these gifts, though, did you earn? None of them. They were precisely that. Gifts from Jesus. 
It was Jesus who forgave your sins. That was his gift. It is Jesus who now gives you spiritual gifts to serve and build up and, and care for one another. And it is King Jesus who will welcome you into his kingdom at the end of the age, on the day. It's all a gift, Paul's saying. It's all by grace. What did you earn? And if all things are gifts, what's with the bragging? What's with the boasting? What's with the puffed upness? You have forgotten, Corinth, to quote Paul before the elders in Ephesus, the gospel of the grace of God. Isn't that marvelous? That Paul can summarize the good news of Jesus as the gospel, the good news of the grace of God. And so I asked this morning, have you forgotten grace? Have you forgotten grace? If you're not a follower of Jesus this morning, it could be tempting to ask right now, well, what's the difference between grace and gratitude? There's a bit of a movement happening in our city uh, with gratitude. And I think overall it's a good movement, right? People are having gratitude journal, journals, right? They write all things they're thankful for in their journal, and they say thank you to who I, I don't know. But it's a sort of, it's, it's just, I think on the whole, a good movement, right? I think we can agree with that. Like if people are generally bickering with one another and like nasty and mean and ungrateful, I think in general, a movement towards gratitude is a good thing. And if you're not a follower of Jesus and you think that this is a good thing, I just want to ask you this morning, uh, to whom are you grateful? Gratitude and thankfulness it presupposes, it requires someone or something who is giving a gift. Someone or something to be grateful towards. And the answer our city gives, by and large, if you have these conversations, is, well, I'm thankful to the universe, right? Or I'm thankful to some divine power, right? Typically some sort of nebulous, vague answer. And it may be, it may be that you'd like to attribute your new job or your new relationship, or your financial success is something out there. But let me just ask you this morning, can you be sure that they gave it to you? To whom do you give thanks for your gifts? See, grace is the thing behind gratitude. For the Christian, gratitude itself is not enough. We have to go to the gift giver himself. It's the gift that leads to our gratitude. So our gratitude is not general or vague, it's specific. Well, how is it specific? John begins his gospel. I don't know if you remember this. In John, in John 1, he says, in Jesus we have received grace upon grace. So God has always dealt with his people on the basis of grace. We should believe that. That's good theology. He's always dealt with his people on the basis of grace. When he gave the law through Moses, that was grace. He didn't have to give the law to his people. He didn't have to disclose himself to Israel. He didn't have to do that. It's grace. He makes his covenant with his people. But it says in John's gospel, in Jesus, we receive grace, perhaps more properly, instead of grace, a superior grace, as it were. Jesus perfectly shows us grace. So the God who has always acted towards us on the basis of grace, on the basis of his unmerited favor and love, has acted towards us most supremely in grace in his son, Jesus. Jesus who lived for us. Jesus who died for us. 
Jesus who heals us even now. Jesus who will welcome us into his kingdom. This is a superior grace to which we are thankful for. So have you forgotten this morning about Jesus' grace? See, the other way we forget about grace is not just, you know, outside of the church sort of, you know, confusing with gratitude, but we also forget about grace when we make it a small thing. I don't know if you have one of these mugs in your home, and if you do, I'm going to apologize for offending you, um, but it, it's a funny thing. Um, sometimes we have the Christian words on mugs in our home, right? Like grace and joy, and like there's like one store in like Abbotsford that sells this stuff. Um, I don't, I, I don't actually, I'm just guessing. I, I don't even know. Uh, five stores. Thank you, Liv. We have some on-the-ground research there. There's five stores that sell these things. That's too many. Um, but you have these mugs in our home. They say grace on them, right? Or we go into a, our house, and again, I'm not trying to offend you, but we have like grace on like some shiplap or something that Joanna Gaines recommended for us. And it's like very pretty and cute, and it's like in cursive, like grace. Like if we stop and consider grace, it's a very offensive thing, isn't it? Like grace is saying, like all your work outside of Christ is useless. Like it's not enough. So imagine putting that on shiplap for our guests to see as they came in, right? Oh, that's a welcoming invitation there. All that work outside of Christ is, is so bad that God the Son had to come into our world, die a horrific death on the cross in our place in order for us to be restored to God. That's what grace is. So I don't want us to domesticate grace this morning as it's some nice little thing we, we just sort of put up on our walls or on our coffee mugs. Have you forgotten about grace? What it says about you, but perhaps more importantly, what it says about the God to whom we worship and serve and sing to. This is the grace we've received. This is grace in. It is for all those who put their faith and trust in Jesus. It's ours in Christ. But Paul will move on. And in point two, we'll see grace out. How does this grace change how we live? Let's read verse eight together. Do you have your Bible? Look at verse eight. Paul writes, Already you have all you want. Already you have become rich. Without us, you have become kings. And would that you did reign so that we might share the rule with you. Puffed up and graceless, the Corinthian leaders believe they have arrived on the basis of their knowledge, their wisdom, and perhaps even their spiritual gifts. And Paul begins to make fun of them. Like if you're a, a sarcastic person, this is your proof text right here. Like Paul's being sarcastic here. This is biblical warrant for your sarcasm. Okay? Paul's being sarcastic here. He, he's making fun of them. You've arrived. You've done it. You guys are there. You guys are so much better than us apostles. So much wiser than us. And who knows, maybe someday we could be so lucky that you would take us on a tour of your penthouse of superiority. Oh, Corinthians, you've arrived. See, without us, that phrase without us, do you see that in verse 8? Without us indicates that these leaders believe themselves to be experiencing something that even the apostles haven't experienced. They're super apostles, as it were. They've moved beyond the apostolic example. And so one scholar writes this, the Corinthians are behaving as if they have achieved the highest spiritual status and so are behaving as if the cross no longer 
matter. The Corinthian leaders have exchanged a grace-filled community with a meritocracy, and conveniently, they are at the top. They've arrived. They've arrived. See, in this total meritocracy, you are only accountable to yourself because it was you and no one else that got you where you are. So your gifts then, your power, your wisdom, your insight, these are utilized in service of your lifestyle, your name. Because, well, why? You earned it. You did it. You. And in a stunning contrast, it really is a stunning contrast when we read these verses, Paul contrasts the life lived by these Corinthian leaders and the apostolic example before them. Read this with me. Verses 9 to 13. He's contrasting a way of living which stems from a specific proud way of thinking and this other way of living seen in the apostles that stems from starting with grace. Verse 9. For I think that God has exhibited us apostles as last of all, like men sentenced to death, because we have become a spectacle to the world, to angels and to men. We are fools for Christ's sake, but you are wise in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. You are held in honor, but we in disrepute. To the present hour, we hunger and thirst. We are poorly dressed and buffeted and homeless. And we labor, working with our own hands. When reviled, we blessed. When persecuted, we endure. When slandered, we entreat. We have become and are still, like the scum of the world, the refuse of all things. On the one hand, you have the Corinthian spirituals, living as if the cross doesn't matter. And on the other hand, you have the apostles. The apostles whose lives, not just their message, are marked by the cross of Christ. And I wanted to say as an aside here, it would be wrong to take this section of Scripture and argue for a sort of self-inflicted asceticism. That is, to say that all Christian life is to not own any clothes or property, right? You have to be homeless and you can't have a home. Just give it all away. See, the contrast here goes much deeper than simply the Corinthians are living like kings and the apostles are living like beggars. It's not simply a contrast of lifestyles. The point in this section of the text is to show the contrast between a life lived for yourself and for your glory and for your pride and a life of obedience that responds to the grace of God. That's the point. We can't miss that. Let me help us understand what's going on here. I think to do that, we have to go into the first century world. If I was to give you a gift today, many of you would think that for me to expect something in return would be inappropriate, right? Why is he giving me this gift? In fact, if I was to expect something in return, a gift or a thank you card or something, would be to delegitimize the gift itself, right? If you're just giving a gift, you got a gift back in return, we think like this, don't we? Well, then the gift you know, doesn't really count, right? Now, I want you to know that if you think that way, you're thinking according to a specific culture. Your, your culture has shaped your thinking on gifts in that respect. Because for others of you, and you're nodding your head right now, to give a gift is to expect something back in return, right? Is it not? For some of you, the cultures that you grew up in was that this is sort of the gift-giving process. And so we, we have neighbors, 
and, and they brought us over this lovely gift one time, and I'm just realizing right now in this moment, <laughs> in their culture, I definitely should have bought them something <laughs> or should have given them something or should have made some show of, of, of being reciprocal in that relationship. And there's nothing wrong with that. See, in Paul's Greco-Roman world, let me, let me see, let us see this together. In Paul's Greco-Roman world, this was a world where, where when someone gave a gift, they were expecting something in return. And in, in expecting something in return, there was no delegitimizing the original gift. In fact, scholars have proven this, this gift-giving sort of reciprocity, as it were, actually strengthened relationships help build bonds in the community of, of thankfulness and gift-giving towards one another. Paul brings, hear me, Christ City, this understanding of gifts to his understanding of grace, okay? Having received that which he, which he did not earn in Christ, he and we and us, we respond to this gift with a life lived for Christ. In fact, a life shaped by Christ. See, the great irony of this passage is that all along, the Corinthians have been saying things like, and we've read this, I follow Paul, and I follow uh, Apollos, and I follow Peter, and yet they haven't been. And yet there are two different lives being lived here. Their lives betray an allegiance to worldly notions of success and power. So we should not overcomplicate this. To live this grace out is to simply follow wherever Christ calls us. Let me say that again. To live this grace out as evidence of grace in is to simply follow wherever Christ calls us. And in case you're like, he probably doesn't mean wherever when he says wherever, let me say it again. To live this grace out, the grace that we've received in, is to simply follow Christ wherever he calls us. Because what we are saying when we are disobedient to the call of God on our lives is this. This life is mine. I've made it for myself. I will choose what to do with it. I think most of us this morning think this way about our lives, that they belong to us. Later on in 1 Corinthians, Paul will say something that will make us all mad. He'll say, you are not your own. Talking about our bodies. We'll get there in a bit. When we see that all is grace, we suddenly find ourselves able to go to whatever length to be obedient to Christ's call on our life, even to be regarded as the scum of the world, the refuse of all things. Paul is talking about the kind of stuff in the first century world you would scrape off the bottom of your shoe, the kind of garbage that would get lost between your toes, that's the language he's using here. That's how the apostles are regarded. Andrew Wilson, he's a scholar. He summarizes the argument here like this. Paul is not calling for pity here. He is not playing the victim card. What he is doing, without ever mentioning the word cross, is reminding them that at the heart of the gospel is the shamed, brutalized, and humiliated son of man who had nowhere to lay his head and that Christians take their cue from him rather than from those whom the world elevates and admires. The grace in was not a cheap grace. It's not a cheap pronouncement of grace 
from some divine throne somewhere. It costs the Father his Son. And when we elevate the shamed and brutalized and humiliated obedient Son, it will be him that we seek to emulate as well. Those who we elevate are also those who we emulate. Indeed, before this passage is about Paul, before this passage is about apostles, this passage is first about Jesus. Maybe you heard the reading that Lydia did this morning, and you thought, you know what, this sounds familiar. I've heard this somewhere before. Well, who does it sound like? It sounds like the one that Isaiah prophesied about many, many, many years before this. In Isaiah 53, he writes, There is one who is coming, who had no former majesty that we should look at him, no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and as one from whom men hid their faces. He was despised, and we esteemed him not. It is only when we receive the one who became the scum of the earth on our behalf, only when we receive his grace, that we are then able to live out this otherworldly, peculiar, cross-shaped grace among others. Grace in, leading to grace out. Last point, grace together. Trace this line with me, if you will. Trace this line. So Paul and Apollos have received this grace of Christ in, are showing this grace of Christ out in their lives, lived in obedience to whatever God calls them to, they are now, this is the third part, they are now inviting the Corinthian church, indeed all churches throughout history, to be a people of gracious discipleship. To be a, a grace family, we could say. See, Paul did not write these things, this is verse 14, to make the Corinthians ashamed, but to admonish them as his beloved children. D despite the sarcasm, right? Despite the biting sarcasm, he does not write to them like a tutor with a rod or a stick, like one of their countless or 10,000 guides. No, he writes to them, how? Like a father. His preference is not that he should come to them with a rod, he ends, but with a spirit of love, sorry, a spirit of gentleness in love. This is Paul's ideal scenario because... He says, for I became your father in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Unless we think that Paul is making much of himself, Paul situates his whole work among the Corinthians in Christ. It was Christ, through his spirit, who used Paul to father this church into existence. And it's from this place of being their spiritual father that Paul says, I urge you then, be imitators of me. I urge you then, be imitators of me. This morning, I want to make Paul's plea sort of my plea as well. We need spiritual fathers and mothers in the church. We need spiritual fathers and mothers in the church. The Corinthians wanted patrons, but Paul has come to them as their father. The difference a patron is someone you use to get ahead in the world. A spiritual father or mother, however, is a grace gift we receive to get ahead in Christ. And I think it's interesting that on the whole, 
We've sort of moved away, I think, maybe this is just me. We've moved away from the language of spiritual fathers and mothers in the church. We prefer kind of less intimate language, like mentors, right? We have a cohort, kind of a squad, right? If we're bros, we have a squad. I don't know. Maybe you do. I don't have that. Like, we prefer other language, but, th- but this intimate language of, of father and mother is, is, I think, too much for us. It's too, it's too close. But see, Paul can only say the things he says in this letter. He can only confront them in one moment and profess his deep love for them the next because he's more than a mentor to them. It's because he's their spiritual father. And if you have a child this morning or you've ever been a child before, which should be all of us, if I understand things correctly, you know that a parent has this privileged place in the life of their children, for good or bad. You know that a parent can say something, and it means so much more than a coach or a mentor or or whoever else. A parent occupies a privileged place in the life of their children. It's the same with a spiritual father or mother. In fact, many of you are here this morning because someone acted as a spiritual father or mother to you. And my plea for spiritual fathers and mothers comes because we're at a bit of a crisis point in the church. The the church. On one hand, we have a younger generation that thinks they know everything. A younger generation that at times disparages older more mature Christians. On the other hand, we have older, allegedly more mature Christians who have decided to use their last years in service of their hobbies and their vacation homes. All the while, we have an entire generation floundering for lack of spiritual fathers and mothers. So let me speak directly to both groups this morning. To those this morning who should be spiritual fathers and mothers, here are the two excuses I hear. One, I don't have time. And two, I wouldn't know what to say. To the second objection, let me say this. Yes, the Christian life is taught, but the Christian life is also caught. There is a pastor in Washington, D.C. named Mark Dever, and he runs an internship program at his church, Capitol Hill Baptist Church. And people literally come from all over the world to be part of this internship program, to be part of this group, to sit under Mark, to to learn from him, to be raised up in their own ministry. And I was at a conference one time, and the question was asked, Mark, you're writing books, you're speaking, you're, you're pastoring a church. How do you find time to build into these young men? And I was expecting like a robust theological, you know, answer, like, you know, he's going to you know, unpack the scriptures for us. And he said, you know what? I invite them to the grocery store with me. I thought that was strange. But but he has this pattern of inviting these young men into the everyday things of his life. To the grocery store, or the gym, or just on walks. I think some of us are not spiritual fathers and mothers this morning because we have before us this vision of us sitting down at a coffee shop, Bibles open, and like just two hours of intense conversation. And frankly, I'm intimidated of that. I don't want to do that. I, I do, but it's intimidating for us. 
But I guarantee you this, you're going to Superstore this week. Or you're going to Costco if you have more than two children. Or if you're a little bit, you know, bougie, you're going to Whole Foods, right? You're going to the grocery store this week, are you not? Older women, mature in Christ, invite a younger woman to come with you. Just watch you as you parent these children. Watch you as you speak the gospel into their life or not in little interactions. Older men, you're going to the grocery store at some point this week. Invite a younger man to go with you. Invite them into the everyday stuff of your life. It doesn't have to be this intentional, intense two hours in the coffee shop. And bonus, if you have biological children, these spiritual children are, are free babysitting for you. Mothers and fathers, those who should be, you should grow in your knowledge of God and his word in order to better mother and father spiritual children. But, but don't let a lack of a theological degree prevent you from sharing a life with others that is marked by the cross. You have no excuse. There are also some of us this morning who are resisting being parented in the Lord. And it could be for a number of reasons. Maybe, and this is the reason of the text, maybe you're puffed up and you think you've arrived. What, what could they po possibly offer me that I don't already have? In fact, I actually know more than they do. Or maybe because your experience with earthly fathers and mothers has been terrible. And you, you can't imagine entering into a relationship like that ever again. Or maybe you just never thought about it before. Whatever the case, here's my plea. If you think you've arrived, that you have nothing left to learn, you haven't matured in Christ at all. At all. You're measuring yourself by some otherworldly metric. To grow in Christ is to see in increasing measure our deficiencies, our sins, and our hang-ups. And so the call this morning is for you to repent. But what if you're among those who have had a horrible earthly relationship with your parents or your parent, your mom or your dad? Hear me so clearly this morning. I am not asking you to trust another man or woman to fill a void in your life that only your heavenly father can fill. Because that's a ditch we want to avoid, right? Putting people into places only God belongs. That's not what's happening here. Our father wounds or our mother wounds can only be healed by our father in heaven. Only him. But part of that healing is to begin once more, maybe in small incremental ways, to once more allow ourselves to look to other more mature believers for imitation. See, one big mistake to both groups we make when we think about spiritual mothers and fathers is that we put them on a pedestal. We do this naturally. We put them where only our Heavenly Father belongs. And it's no wonder we prefer our spiritual fathers and mothers to exist on screens. It's no wonder. It's no wonder we prefer big-name authors and speakers to be our spiritual fathers and mothers. That's not what Paul's talking about here. See, there's no way we think they can disappoint us if they're 1,200 miles away in Texas somewhere. There's no way they can disappoint us if we only hear them once a week from their podcast. 
One of the beautiful things about this passage is that Paul knows that spiritual parenting cannot be done through a screen, a podcast, or even a letter, but that it needs to be embodied. And so he writes, do you see that? If the Lord allows, I will come to you soon. But in the meantime, look at verse 17. That is why I sent you Timothy, my beloved and faithful child in the Lord, to remind you of my ways in Christ as I teach them everywhere in every church. The Corinthians need, we all need, the cross of Jesus, the cruciform life lived out before our very eyes. We need to behold grace, not in the abstract, but in the flesh, before us, in its home, at the grocery store. See, the whole idea of this neighborhood church that we're doing here rests on the conviction that we are meant to be, by the grace of God in Christ Jesus, physically together. Physically together. That the more mature in Christ are to be, are to be eagerly available for those who are maturing. And that those who are maturing would humbly and eagerly go to the grocery store with the mature. That the grace in would become the grace out that we might know and enjoy this grace together as a church. Friends, it begins this morning by receiving the grace of God in Christ Jesus. And if you have not received that grace, I invite you to receive it today. To know this grace to put your trust in Jesus. Come talk to me following the gathering. I would love to serve you communion for the first time upon a profession of your faith. It begins there. It is shown in our obedience to live the cross-shaped life to which we've been called. And I can say this pretty confidently because I think it's all of us to some degree. I know there are people here this morning who, who are not walking in obedience to what Jesus is calling them to do. And ultimately, it comes back to is your life your own? Or is it a gift? Is it your own or is it a gift? And if you think it's your own, you can repent this morning and receive once more the gift of your life in Christ Jesus. The result of all this is a community and a neighborhood and a nation and a world transformed by the very gospel of grace. What is unique about what we're doing here? What is unique about Christianity amongst the world religions? It's easy. It's easy. It's grace. Let's pray. So, Father, we come this morning on the basis of your son, Jesus. On the basis of his grace shown to us in his death and his resurrection. So, Father, I ask that you would forgive us. Forgive us for the times that we've become proud as a church, thinking that we've done this or we've done that, and claiming for ourselves things that are really gifts from you. Father, I ask that your grace would permeate every, every corner of our church community, that it would go out from here into our neighborhood, that we would be agents of grace, your grace, wherever we go this week. We love you. We pray these things in your name. Amen. Hey, everyone. This is Jake, lead pastor of Christ City Church, East Vancouver. And I want to let you know about a few things. First, if you're not a part of a local church, let me invite you to join us each Sunday morning at 2605 East Pender Street in East Vancouver for Worship, Word, and Sacrament. 
Second, if you are new and you want to get connected, let me say welcome. Christ City Church East Vancouver is a neighborhood church committed to making missional disciples for the sake of the neighborhood. If you want to be a part of or hear more of what we believe God has called us to do in East Vancouver, please reach out to me at jake at christcitychurch.ca.